1: I'm your host, Catriona Gold, and today I'll be talking to Amy J. Rutenberg, who is an assistant professor of history at Iowa State University. Her new book is called Rough Draft, Cold War Military Manpower and the Origins of Vietnam Era Draft Resistance. The book came out with Cornell University Press in 2019, and I'm very much looking forward to discussing it today. So welcome to the show, Amy. Hey, It's great to be here. All right. Well, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself. So what's your kind of intellectual trajectory been? Um, Where do you find yourself in the world right now? How are you doing? (laughs) I'm doing well. I uh, I actually just got promoted to associate professor, so that's exciting. Um,
0: And a long time coming because I did not take a straight path. Um, I... (laughs) I actually was a teacher for many years before I returned to graduate school to get the PhD Um, and so then when I completed my PhD I've actually been hired into positions that split my time between uh, being a historian and teaching historical courses and also working with social studies education programs. So I work a lot with um, student teachers and, and teach methods and teaching courses as well. And so it's been a, a little bit of a crooked path, um, but I feel extraordinarily lucky to have landed where I have. Um, in terms of my intellectual path to get here, it's, it's interesting, as I'm sure everyone knows, I, I guess everyone's research path is a little crooked. Um, I have always been interested in The idea of how folks end up in the military and how one is enticed to fight, I think, going back to watching movies about the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and looking at these lines of men just walking into fire and not understanding how on earth anyone could possibly do that. And uh, that combined, that interest in military service, combined with a discovery of women's history uh, when I was in college in the mid to late 90s. And I ended up doing a undergraduate thesis on the women's military branches in the United States during World War II, a comparative look at those those military branches. Um, but then I went off to be a teacher. I got a master's in education and I went off to teach high school outside of New York. Um, I truly did not believe myself um, smart enough to do a PhD. Um, and and I really did want to teach. It was sort of always where my heart was. Um, but one of the things that happened is that in a summer program through the National Endowment for the Humanities, I did a summer seminar for teachers uh, with historians from the University of Massachusetts on women's history. Specifically, I realized how much I missed the process of doing history, of being in archives, and also Um, I thought, you know, coming in contact with graduate students and realizing that they were actual real people, um, made me realize that maybe I could do this too. And so that's how I ended up going back to graduate school. Um, I didn't fully understand the process of application or how one chooses a project. And since I had done that undergraduate work on women in the military, the assumption was always that I would continue with that. and it was during seminars and, and undergrad, or, sorry, graduate uh, coursework, looking at papers that I realized I couldn't talk about something like the recruitment of women in the 1950s unless I understood the recruitment of men. And there wasn't anything because the assumption was that because there was a draft going on, that was how men were, were getting into the military. Um, and I, I just sort of started digging and realizing that there are two sides to this gender coin as well as military service. So I never lost the interest in military service. And in fact, it deepened. As I mentioned, I I did my teaching outside of New York and I was there for 9-11. I was teaching during 9-11 and my community lost members. I had students who went down to ground zero as emergency medical technicians. Um, It was not only an attack on our country, but it really felt like an attack on the community where I was living. And yet... To my knowledge, um, only one of the students who I taught ended up joining the military upon graduation. And he, even as a ninth grader, had always wanted to join the military. Pre 9-11, he wanted to fly aircraft. That is what he wanted to do. And as far as I know, he went on to do it. But 9-11 didn't change the plans of any of my students, I don't think. And that was in a real contradiction to what I'd been taught about World War Two and how men you know, flooded the enlistment centers and, you know, wanted to go fight after Pearl Harbor. Um, And so all of these pieces sort of came together as I was thinking, well, what had changed since World War II? How do people end up in the military? And also that gendered aspect that I've really felt like there was something missing. And so all of that ended up falling together into this, into this book that looks at military manpower policy between World War II and the Vietnam War, Um, from a gendered lens. Uh, And I found a lot of things that surprised me. Uh, Perhaps most surprising on the top of it, um, although I guess not to those familiar with the actual historical literature, is that men really didn't flood the enlistment centers after the first few days after Pearl Harbor. Um, And in fact, the only way you get a military of 16 million men to fight a war, even one that was an overwhelmingly supported war, uh, is to have a draft, <laughs> so that that that's sort of point one. But all of that led me to here, and I'm going down the garden path.
1: So, so that's fascinating, Amy. Um, so, I, I guess I mean the question of Mohammed is this: is this book then is it a sort of product of the PhD thesis? Um, ultimately, yes. so this right. did
0: originate as my dissertation. Um, the middle four chapters of the book are the dissertation. I managed to write a dissertation that looks at the years between World War II and the Vietnam War, and in the dissertation, write neither a chapter on World War II nor the Vietnam War. So those had to be added after I graduated. Um, And in fact, I'm glad that it worked out that way, because to be frank, um, I did write the dissertation as a story of disruption In other words, I did argue in the dissertation that men during the Vietnam War era did act differently than their fathers and uncles had during World War II. And my dissertation committee wisely said, well, are you sure? Why don't you write these chapters, go do the research and figure that out? And they were correct. And so the book makes an argument for continuity rather than disruption. Um, I think the two main arguments of the book are, one, that the so-called greatest generation and the Vietnam generation really did not act that differently in relationship to the draft. In both cases and throughout the period under study, and I would probably argue through every other war where there was conscription in the United States, men looked for ways out. Um, They ultimately served when they needed to, um, but they did did look for ways to avoid service, and so the the perspective between the two, you know, the two ends there, the Vietnam and World War II, were really not different. That that juxtaposition of good war, bad war doesn't work with manpower, even though that's the sort of public narrative. Um, and then the second argument it makes is, well, why is that? What did change then? Because clearly there was something different between World War II and Vietnam. And so the argument that the bulk of the book makes is that while men, and women too, if they were subject to the draft, I assume, but the book deals with men because the, the draft was single sex. Um, if, if men are always going to be, in the aggregate, ambivalent toward military service, toward conscription, then what did change? And the answer that I came up with in the book and that I argue is that there were more, options more loopholes more ability for men to work the system during the vietnam war than there were during world war ii and the reason for that is grounded in cold war policy the policies relating to the deferments that the vietnam war era is famous for were created as specific responses to perceived cold war needs um domestic needs, military needs, defense needs, um, and that, that goes in all sorts of different directions. Ultimately, where we end up, I argue, during the Vietnam War, is that because it was an unpopular war, because the, the political context had changed, it opens the door for more public avoidance of service in a way that the, the public nature of it had not been present during World War II or Korea. And it, so it becomes more public during the Vietnam War. It's not that the actions themselves have changed, or the desires or the avoidance has changed. It's that men are much more public about it.
1: Right. Okay. So, so what was this? Um, this the understanding, you know, contemporary with the Vietnam War. What, what were? How were people talking about draft resistors um, then? Like what? That's that's. I guess I'm curious about that. Um, How were they being compared to to kind of World War II? Yeah, what was the comparison that was being made or what were the standings there?
0: Sure. So I guess I should start by being clear about my terms. And to be honest, I wasn't clear about my terms in the title of the book. (laughs) I've gotten some pushback, rightly so, on that since it has come out. The truth of the matter is, is that the bulk of the book deals with what I would call draft avoidance. It is an umbrella idea for all the different ways that people avoided serving in the military particularly through the draft ways that they avoided the draft and the vast majority of the men who avoided the draft did so legally they did throw did so by obtaining deferments that were perfectly legal that were that were built into the law on purpose um, draft resistors with a capital R really tends to refer more toward folks who who um, disagree with the system in one way, shape, or form, and refuse to cooperate with it at all, meaning that they refuse to register, or if they do register, they refuse to be inducted. They refuse to cooperate. Um, So I think resistance, as I was thinking about it when we came up with the title was resistance with a lowercase r because nobody is going to care about a book that talks about draft avoidance in its title. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I guess I should be a, a, a little clear there. And so what I found is that traditionally, I think most of the avoidance that has occurred during times of conscription in the United States, that avoidance is generally quiet. In other words, well-kept local secrets within families or in small communities or everybody kind of knows whose dad bought them a farm so that they could get an agricultural deferment um, or who chose to, you know, have a child so that they could get a dependency deferment, but knowledge about how to get those kinds of deferments primarily through whisper networks. It wasn't something nobody wanted to be, seen as a coward, for example, or a shirker during World War II. But because this the, the context was so different by the Vietnam War, um, it opened the door to much more public sharing of information, particularly, and this is something that I continue to be interested in, the phenomenon of draft counselors. Um, there had been some draft counseling through the Cold War and before Um, for very specific pacifist organizations. In other words, if a man was a sincere pacifist under the definition of the law, how could he best get a conscientious objector deferment? And there were bureaus, uh, the Central Committee for Conscientious Objectors, for example, um, and some other smaller ones that would help men get that deferment. But during the Vietnam War, this phenomenon of draft counseling it just explodes. Um, it moves away from simple conscientious objection deferments, um, as activists with political agendas, primarily, how do we foul up the system? How do we keep men from having to serve? How do we um, keep, you know, basically keep, slow the gears, slow the military's gears. Um, they're talking to each other, they're conducting trainings for each other, they're opening um, draft counseling centers on college campuses and in urban centers all over, literally all over the country, um, where men who may or may not share those uh, political proclivities can go to get out of service, to learn how to get a deferment. Um, One study I saw showed that as many as 25% of draft eligible men consulted a draft counselor during the Vietnam War era, which is huge. And yet it's a phenomenon that we don't know a whole lot about. But the bottom line is that by the time of the Vietnam War, there was enough pushback against the draft publicly that it became untenable. And that's part of why the Nixon administration made the changes it did to a lottery uh, in late 69, early 70, and ultimately why the draft was allowed to expire in 1973.
1: Okay. Right. Okay. Thank you. That was, yeah, that was really comprehensive and helpful. Um. So, I mean, well, I think, I think I, I, one one of the things the book does really well is sort of get into how, and, and I mean, this talk about whispered networks, I feel like there's a connection there with how sort of class and race, those questions play into who gets drafted and who doesn't get drafted, right? Who's able to avoid um, if they want to. Um. So I'm wondering if, you might speak to, to those aspects of the book. So sure. what does, yeah, what do, those, what, do, what do class and race have to do with it? And of course, we're going to get to what does masculinity and you know, Cold War ideas about masculinity have to do with it as well, Absolutely. right? Mm-hmm.
0: So the whole middle of the book, the bulk of it, right, except for those two, two chapters at <laughs> the front and the back on World War II and Vietnam, it really is the story that I, that I wanted to tell. Um, I think most most Americans, at least still, the cultural memory of the Vietnam War era is of these deferments and of men who had means of being able to avoid military service or at least service in Vietnam. Um, you know, even just our presidents, George uh, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, they, they have their stories. Donald Trump, um, they have their stories in terms of how they avoided service because they were privileged people. Um, and so the question became, how, well, how did that happen? I mean, power begets power. But more importantly, what was going on in the policies and the regulations that allowed this to happen on a much larger scale? And the answer that I came up with is that the selective service in particular Had to retool itself to justify its existence between really the end of World War II and the beginning of the Vietnam War. The draft was, uh, it continued with only a very, very short break in 1947 48. It continued all the way through the period from 1940 before World War II, the U.S. involvement in World War II, until 1973. So that includes a lot of peacetime. And that is a change for the United States, which had traditionally up until that point not done peacetime conscription. It had only grown its military quickly through conscription during wartime and then quickly contracted again after the wars. But the... Exigencies of the Cold War meant that policymakers, planners felt that they needed a much larger military than normal, and that it had to be nimble and able to handle multiple issues around the world. If there were, you know, nuclear war or small brush fires or ground war in Europe or whatever came up, the military had to be able to respond to it. And planners felt that they needed a draft in order to do that. The main purpose of the draft, though, partially was to bring men in, but it was also to pressure men to voluntarily enlist. Uh, Draft-motivated enlistments were, in fact, the bulk of enlistments through this whole period, the idea being that if a man faced the pressure of the draft, he would choose to enlist because he could then choose his branch of service, uh, have a little bit more control over how long he'd be in, have a little bit more control over the job he was given, that sort of thing. So in other words, draft calls were extremely low through most of this period of time. So the draft exists. It theoretically exists on the theory that all men owe a responsibility to their nation if their nation wants them. But realistically, the nation doesn't want all of them, anywhere close to all of them, especially as the baby boom generation begins to come of age. There is no possible way the military establishment could use all of the eligible men. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, you have all these eligible men. They're not actually being drafted. How do you justify, um, you know, calling some but not others and the potential anger that could exist from that, all different kinds of problems? The answer is that the head of the Selective Service, Louis B. Hershey, who was in charge through this entire period of time, he became its director in 41 and stayed in that job until 1970. Um, He firmly believed that all men had the responsibility to serve their nation somehow, but the nature of that service was going to be different in this Cold War era, right? Communism was not only a military threat abroad, it became an ideological threat, an economic threat domestically as well. And so how does the United States best fight the Cold War? And the answer that the policymakers really came up with is that Well, the United States needs scientists. It needs engineers. It needs teachers. It needs um, breadwinning fathers who are economically successful because it's going to be the next technological breakthrough that will give the United States a weapons advantage. But it's also going to be a strong economy that makes capitalism look good around the world. And so all of this is based on the idea and a certain kind of middle class man with a particularly good job who is able to support his family um, so that the mom can stay home and raise the kids and create the sort of idealized suburban consumer Americanness ness that stands in contrast to what the Soviets and other communists have to offer, that that's going to be part of winning the Cold War as well. Plus, it serves the purpose of actually limiting the number of eligible men. For the draft, right? If you have a deferment, you're moved out of the eligible pool of men, that shrinks the eligible pool, and it makes it look like this selective service and those who are conscripted are actually a lot more. Um, it's a lot more efficient, <laughs> um, and so the 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 policies themselves by the the mid 1950s, uh, Hershey is specifically talking about this idea of manpower channeling, of channeling men through the granting of deferments, into the places where the country needs them. So you can get an occupational deferment if you are a teacher, if you are an engineer, if you are a doctor, if you are a researcher, you know, if you are a, a scientist. And so men are, there is clear evidence that men choose those jobs so that they can avoid being drafted. And the idea is that they'll stay in those jobs until... You know they're no longer eligible for the draft, but by then they've got families, they've got mortgages, they need to stay where they are, and so they stay put. Um, and so they're channeled in that direction. Similarly with fatherhood, um, and that's why we have a student deferment. Right, the student deferment is famous for being inequitable. By the time of the Vietnam War, um, it actually was put in place during the Korean War when the the Selective Service was actually, there were there were low numbers of men available during the Korean War because there'd been low birth rates during the 1930s, during the Depression. And so by the 1950s, the, the Selective Service is scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel. Like they're trying to figure out any possible way to get men into service. But that's the moment when the student deferment comes on board. Um, because the, the theory was that if we draft all these men who are in college, who are going to be our future scientists and our future engineers and our future you know, language experts or whatever, then we're actually going to harm ourselves long term. This was seen as the new normal. So that's where the student deferment came from. It's a way to fight the Cold War. But if you think about it, who's it open to? (laughs) It's open to the people who can afford college, who have a strong educational background, who, um, generally speaking, are going to be middle class in the United States, and generally speaking, who are going to be white. Less than 5% of African Americans attended college for a whole host of reasons through the 1950s and 60s. So this is not going to be open to whole segments of the population. Um, And so that's sort of one half of the issue. And then the other is that by the 1960s, the early 1960s, by the Kennedy administration and the Johnson administration, you have another shift in context, and that is this focus on poverty and how do we strengthen the United States by eliminating poverty, right? If, if, if consumer capitalism is the thing that makes the United States great and you have up to 20% of the population that really can't participate in that, then it doesn't look good. It's, it's not good for, for national strength and unity. Um, And so the war on poverty actually gets yoked to these manpower policies. Um, The theory being that, okay, we have these men who are otherwise not qualified for military service. The studies show that they are overwhelmingly poor and working class and disproportionately men of color. So what do we do? And the the answer that uh, the defense establishment specifically Robert McNamara, settle on is, well, we can use the military to help teach these men some skills that they can then take out into the civilian world when they um, are discharged, and they can become good breadwinners, too. And so there are a series of rehabilitation programs that are piloted on a voluntary basis through 1964-65, But it also becomes clear that that's not enough. And so Robert McNamara introduces this program called Project 100,000 in 1966, that brings in 100,000 men per year who otherwise would not have been qualified for military service. Half of them are enlistees, the other half are draftees. The theory being that they can get the training that they need in service. they are the, the project 100,000 men are 40% African American when, you know, normal per, uh, proportions in the United States are about 10% African American. So the proportions are wildly off. Um, and this happens to be just at the moment when Vietnam is picking up and almost all these men are sent into the infantry. But realistically, if you are bringing in 100,000 people who otherwise would not have been needed are allowed to be in the military, um, who are overwhelmingly coming from poor and working class backgrounds. That's literally 100,000 other men who you're not pulling out of other constituencies. So there there are these very strong racial and gender ideas about who contributes and how they can best contribute and in what way. And the policies, even though they're technically colorblind, um, they really land on, well, predominantly white, predominantly middle-class men are most productive as civilians and working class, disproportionately men of color are best, um, you know, they, they can contribute best in the military.
1: So right. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, that, that is a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, so something that seems that, that's really interesting about that to me is how yeah, this the idea of funneling certain people into civilian life and certain people into the military. There's a, there's an idea that certain parts of the population would benefit from that kind of reform, right? That kind of training, and that that's obviously very classed and and racialized. And I think that's super interesting. And and yeah, I mean, I would quite like to hear more about that in how that intersects with with the war on poverty. If if you, yeah, if you wouldn't mind. I mean, maybe you could sort of yeah briefly define what the war on poverty is. Oh, sure. Um, and then, no, I mean, for, you know, um, we're coming from different places here today. So, um, yeah, and then and then maybe discuss how these questions of, of military service sort of, yeah, did intersect with that too. Um, that would be Absolutely. Great.
0: So by the 19, you know, by the Kennedy administration, but certainly into the Johnson administration, there was a lot of concern amongst uh, liberals around, solving the problem of poverty in the United States, because it was a country that was extraordinarily affluent. There'd been decades of, of, of growing economy, and it was clear that there were segments of the population that were being left behind. And so the question became why? And it's out of that sort of, uh, you know, and, and so liberals, policymakers, social scientists, they're looking at the tangle of poverty, of race, of, of you know, urban, blight um, of, of poverty in rural spaces like the Appalachians and trying to find policies and practices that would help lift people out of out of out of that poverty um, however based on the ideals of the time um, the notion was that individuals needed to take the opportunities that were available to them that handouts were bad and that uh, the the best way to lift families out of poverty was to figure out how to create breadwinners. And so you see this whole host of programs that are sort of tentatively tried out during the Kennedy administration, but that are really picked up by, by Johnson to create job training programs, to offer uh, skills and literacy training to, to people who are willing to take them. And then of course there are the much larger um, sort of centerpiece Uh, pieces of legislation that are related to that, you know, the creation of Medicaid, the Head Start, all all sorts of other programs that are designed in theory to help people lift themselves uh, out of poverty. On the other hand, the flip side of that is that these programs also tended to be paternalistic and they tended to disrupt uh, the power structures as they existed in some cases, or in other cases, just um, bought into those power structures. And so, for example, Right. The military is identified because every single man upon turning 18 was subject to the draft. And as part of that process, every man underwent a pre-induction exam. And the pre-induction exam involved a physical examination and an aptitude test. And so it is seen, these these pre-induction exams are seen as a way we can identify the people who are most likely to become and and the language of the time was a burden on society and, and there are some quotes in the book from Robert McNamara and the Secretary of Labor Willard Wirtz and other things talking about salvaging you know these damaged people and, and I don't I couldn't say them off the top of my head but you can certainly look them up um, you know that's the the language that was being used um, but because selective service it only affected men right women are not getting these. These exams, they're not taking the tests, and they are for the most part ignored <laughs> in in the regulations and the policies that come out of this. So the idea is to try to identify these men through selective service because that's the going to be an efficient way of doing it. And if you assume that men have the responsibility to lift their families out of poverty, then that, and you know they're the people to target. Um, the voluntary programs that. Um, uh, recommended medical care that recommended um, literacy or job skills training programs for the most part um, men didn't take the government up on those options Um, and the reality is they didn't because they knew perfectly well that if they solved the physical problem that was keeping them from being eligible for the draft or passed the induction mental exam that they would be drafted and sent to vietnam (laughs) So the evidence is pretty clear about that, that the men themselves knew perfectly well what was going on. And they actually turned down services um, because they didn't want to go to Vietnam. They didn't want to be drafted. So uh, working class and poor men were absolutely engaging in draft avoidance behavior as well, to be clear. Um, they were just engaging in different kinds of draft avoidance behavior because the laws didn't give them the same options that it gave to say, college educated men. Um, Anyway, when the voluntary programs didn't work, then that's when uh, Project 100,000 comes on board. Um, And McNamara, you know, the the, the literature that exists sort of examining this, um, examining Project 100,000 ever since, people have different perspectives in terms of why this program existed. And I think that the very cynical one is that McNamara wanted cannon fodder, that that he creates this program at the same moment that, that Vietnam is escalating. And this is an easy way to allow for sort of Allow the military to pull in underprivileged men who can then just be sent off to, to Vietnam, and I, I don't think that's true. Um, I actually think that McNamara was working on this well before American involvement in Vietnam stepped up. Um, it just happens that the timing coincided, and I don't. I, I doubt. I doubt McNamara saw it as a problem that it that coincided. Right? It, it sort of mm-hmm. killed two birds with one stone. Um, But I do think that he legitimately thought that this was a good way to help the nation's men. And in that he wasn't alone. If you think about the relationship with the, the Moynihan Report, the famous report that talks about the tangle of pathology in Black families as a legacy of slavery and poverty, and the notion that, you know, matriarchal families are problematic, right? How do we solve this problem of matriarchal families? and I put problem in, in air quotes there, um, the answer is by training up stronger men who can be better breadwinners, right? It's not... <laughs> so that that was the current of liberal thought at the time. It was it was all up and down the the line in, in the Johnson administration at that time.
1: Right, right. So, yeah, these are really interesting intersections there. Um, I think that brings us on really well to to this, this other question, which of course we've been getting at um, throughout the interview, but of how um, yeah, certain ideas about masculinity played into um, both narratives about uh, people serving during World War II, I think, and what kind of men were serving during World War II, but also these ideas about yeah military training and service and what they do or don't do. For men, um, and what kind of what kind of subjects are being are being produced by that? And I wonder, um, I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about that and how that maybe shifted or didn't shift between uh, World War Two and and Vietnam.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think one of the most interesting things is that all of us, myself included, and I, I, I include myself here because I think about the assumptions that I walked into this project with. World War II, the role of the military, the, the construction of the image of martial masculinity, of the strength that comes through military service, that military service makes men, that it teaches good citizenship, that um, that there's something really beneficial there. That shows up in, you know, think John Wayne, for example, think um, comic books or G.I. Joe or, you know, whatever cultural product you want to look at. And and that has also, you know, that there's a push for this notion of martial masculinity that that the military makes men. But even though that seems like a narrative that is true, the reality has always been more contested than that. And I think there's a lot of literature out there that talks about this in terms of, you know, the different ways that men were taught to be men through through the Cold War era and the different roles that military service has to play there. Um, and I talk about in the book in chapter two actually the the argument over universal military training. Um, It's sort of a a little bit of a sidetrack in the larger narrative of the book. Um, But I think it's really interesting because it shows these contradictions. And the background there is that universal military training was this idea. It had its sort of first wave right around World War I, and then was pushed again toward the end of World War II into the sort of very, very early Cold War era. The idea that well, if you need a large pool of trained men who could be mobilized if necessary, right, if, if there were another war, um, but also as a way of uh, a, a way to provide citizenship training, uh, job skills training, health care, et cetera, to the entire mass of young men in the United States then a good way to do that would be to bring them all in for some kind of military training, either six months or a year, Um, keep them as civilians, but really put it under the umbrella of the military. They would learn to overcome their prejudices. They would learn to be better breadwinners. They would learn the importance of civic engagement, and then they'd be available if there was ever a war. And so this is this huge push from like 44 to 40, well, it ends around 51, finally. Um, and it came actually decently close to passing in 1947, as as people were, were thinking about, well, what are the benefits of military training and how can we use this? But there was also just extraordinary pushback from both ends of the political spectrum, talking about how, well military service is going to harm the traditional family structure if you take these 18 year olds away from their families then that's going to alter their development and they're not going to learn the best way to be uh, to be men within the family structure they're going to be militarized they're going to be routinized they're going to lose independent thought Um, and you have similar arguments actually coming from the far left as well who view this growth of militarization as incredibly dangerous in an atomic era (laughs) So um, the idea that military service and what it means is contested has and connected to ideas of masculinity and who men should be is deeply ingrained in all of this Um, with different people. Ascribing different meanings of service to real men, how does a real man serve his country? In what ways is he most valuable? Um, and so all of these policies are shot through with different assumptions and expectations. Uh, the most easy way to, to, to point that out is like, think about the deferment um, for dependency, right? If you're a father, Is the reason you can't be drafted as a father or why it's a problem to be drafted as a father because you lose your wages in your civilian job? Or is it something else? Because the wages in the civilian job can theoretically be replaced by wages in the military plus a family allowance. So then why is it a problem to draft away fathers? And the answer for a lot of Americans is because fathers offer something more than just money. (laughs) And it's that that intangible, you know, that, that moral compass to the family, that guidance, that that idea of what a father, a masculine father is in the home and a husband, that, that that's the most important thing. And so these are the currents that are, you know, moving through all of these, these policy decisions.
1: Right. OK. And so um, I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about as, as, I, as we talk is a lot of this seems to be focused on the idea of how men are trained, um, you know, if, if for military service, and I, and the question that that I'm wondering about is, to what extent was there discussion, or was there discussion about how men would then be shaped by, you know, actual the realities of actual military service? You know, if you come home at all, could you know, what about shell shock or you know, PTSD as we now? know it um what about you know physical injuries that could result how did they sort of so this is a bit a bit off mm-hmm. you know out there but I'm just I'm wondering if there was conversation about those kind of realities of, of war too or if it was just about this kind of you know in, in terms of uh, the psychology of like what type of man you should be yes but what about those uh those other realities of war did they enter into the discussion <sighs> not in
0: the direction not coming from for example the selective service Um, Congress people, the hearings that were in favor, the discussions behind the scenes, I did not see very much of that other than in congressional hearings, when, um, different kinds of activists from different places and areas came to give their, um, to give their testimonies and to explain their points of view. Um, there, there was certainly some discussion around what war does to men, uh, psychologically and physically, but honestly, not as much as I would have expected. And obviously as you would have expected, um, you know, the discussion is much more around the benefits of service on one hand, or the potential drawbacks of service or training, um, to a, to a, to a boy, right. To a young man, as opposed to Mm -hmm. what might happen to him on the other side of the, the other side of the service, um, I think the people were much more concerned about militarizing society, um, the potential for atomic or nuclear conflict, um, you know, turning into totalitarians ourselves and fascists ourselves if you continued down that down that path to its logical conclusion. They thought the peace activists, um, yeah, not not as much as I would have thought.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of just dis- the terrain, the sort of a limited terrain on which those conversations were being had then. That's really interesting. Cause yeah, that's where yeah. my mind immediately goes. Is is well, are they gonna come home? And where yeah, where what happens to the family if they don't, and so on and so forth, right? Like that seems like the big question. But um yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh so okay, um I I feel like we've done A really good job. Well, you've done a really good job in in summarizing some of the key arguments of this book, which is absolutely fascinating. I guess I'm I'm wondering if there's anything I haven't asked you about that you'd like to say more about now.
0: Hmm. Um, nothing that I can think of off the top of my head. I think that all of this is having some interesting implications, you know, in the present day. Um around the different ways that people understand military service. And I I guess I would say that my story in this book ends in 1973 when the draft ends. And so even though in the United States, for example, right now, there's discussion around opening up registration for selective service to women. um, The story that I tell, I think, is very important. But a lot of stuff happened after 1973 when the draft ended that can't be ignored when looking at the current moment. Right, so there, there are lessons to draw from the past, absolutely, but I don't want to ignore the the forty years after that. <laughs> so I'm I'm getting asked a lot of questions, for example, around you know social engineering and the role of selective service in the draft and uh, perceptions of military service and gender, and all of those are very important questions that have partial answers in this pre 1973 period, but. I think more research into the 70s and 80s and 90s is important, um, which actually I think probably flows to what I assume is your next question around my next project, because I'm starting to look at that <laughs>
1: as well. Uh, so I yeah, guess that's absolutely. why it's on my mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah, I would I would, I would, would love to know, uh, yeah, what you're working on now or what you're working on next. And yeah, I agree, that would... I would yeah, I do want to know this book does make me want to know, like, where does the story go from there? Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So please, uh, what are you working on at the moment? What is next?
0: Yeah. So I um, this book was very much a, a book around policy. And I tried to bring in individual men and activists wherever I could. But my sources and what I was focused on, my questions were very much from the policy side. I am interested in my next book in trying to flip that and remain asking questions around policy and regulation, but also to think about the role of activists. And so I'm looking, I'm trying to figure out what to call them. I'm, I'm calling them for shorthand anti-militarist activists. But honestly, that's not that's not an effective descriptor because some are anti-militarists and some are not and some are whatever, peace activists. Related to military service, the language is still clunky. Um, Activists clearly had a huge role in ending the draft and ending the Vietnam War. I would say that's pretty clear. Um, But there was a tremendous amount of activism that took place after that related to military service. Um, Counter recruitment in the era of all volunteer force. In other words, trying to keep men from enlisting. Um, military counseling to help men who did enlist get out of the service if they felt that they were conscientious objectors, Um, and then also quite a bit of activism against the reinstatement of selective service under the Carter and then Reagan administrations. So when the Vietnam War ended, uh, the draft ended and registration ended. There was a brief period of time where men didn't have to do anything relating to selective service. And then President Carter reinstated Registration um, in in response to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and a whole other set of reasons, and that's where we are today. Men register, or they're supposed to, when they turn eighteen. Um, so the question is: Well, should women be responsible for that registration as well? That's that's the question that was salient in 1980, and it remains a question that's salient today. Um, but I'm I'm interested that the activists I've spoken to very much see the Selective Service as it exists today as a failed institution. That it exists, but it's incapable of doing what it's supposed to do, which is to mobilize men in the event of a war. That we have no idea how many men actually never register. Certainly nobody updates their address when they move. Like, Could people actually be found through the Selective Service? Um, and they credit that to activism in the 1980s. There were men who actually went to jail for failing to register and for, for their activism work in the eighties. And so I don't know what story I'm telling yet, but I know there's a story and that's where I'm going.
1: Right. So you've been speaking with, with activists. Um, Yeah. 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 And
0: I'm, I'm interested in how, how we think about activism and what success means, um, and also on the policy side, well, are, is all of this work that these, these people were doing, men and women, what what were the policymakers saying? Were they even aware of their conversations? Like, you know, the Reagan administration stopped prosecuting men, for example, for selective service resistance in 1986. There they were a series of prosecutions through the early 80s, and then they just, they stopped. And, you know, why? What was actually being said in those
1: meetings? I don't know,
0: hmm. um, but I hope to find out.
1: Okay, wow. Well I am looking forward to reading about it. Um, that's that's really excellent and seems like a great kind of lead-on from this from this book. Um yeah, I uh, I want to I guess I want to plug on on that note um there's a geographer Allison Mounts who who kind of has has been working on a documentary film project about war resistors that kind of spans that time scale and I, I wonder if that would be of interest I'm not sure if it's out out yet um, and that's specifically about kind of war resistors resistors of the capital R I think um and I also want to take this opportunity uh, at the end of this interview to plug another new books network interview with Patrick called, um about his book, Nuclear Suburbs, and that came out a few months ago. I think he was interviewed by Stenta Danielson. Um, and that was about kind of another side to the story you're discussing, because uh, it was about scientists and nuclear scientists specifically during the Cold War. And so it was really interesting to kind of, yeah, I've been reading that book and, and read this one together, sort of looking at those two different sides. So it's really exciting work happening um, now on these questions. And I'm so, so grateful uh, that we got to talk about your book today. So thank you so much for speaking with me today, Amy.
0: Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And and there is, there's a huge scholarship out there. I mean, different people looking at, at different elements of all of this. So yeah, if anyone's interested,
1: there's a lot to dig into. <laughs> oh <laughs> so
0: yeah. Thanks for having for sure. me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you. Um, so You've been listening to Catriona Gold interviewing Amy J. Rutenberg, who is an associate professor, congratulations, at Iowa State University, um, of history, that is. And her new book is called Rough Draft, Cold War, Military Manpower, and the Origins of Vietnam-era Draft Resistance. And you can get the book from Cornell University Press. So thank you so much again, Amy, and until next time.